we're going to read from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Where is Paul when he writes? Maybe that's a harder question. Presumably. Rome, right, at the end of the book of Acts. He's uh, waiting his uh, uh, appearance before Caesar to see whether uh, his accusers will succeed in getting him put to death or if he will be let go. And from uh, at the end of the two years of house arrest, he's writing to the Philippians to say thank you for their gift of money to help him and for their gift of Epaphras, uh, Epaphroditus uh, to assist him as well. So we are... In the New Testament, page 1174 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along the reading, we've just gotten as far as the introductory portion of the letter. Paul has identified himself and Timothy as uh, the ones from whom the letter comes, and the saints in Philippi as the one to whom the letter goes, and then gives the customary greeting, but saturating it with all of the fullness of the gospel in wishing them Grace and peace from God. So he continues in this introductory uh, portion, in verse 3, in praying for his, uh, his readers. So maybe slight variations in the translation. Just take my word for it that there's good arguments that can be made for the variations that I read. But don't get too upset if uh, you don't think they're better. I don't know. Um, Anyway, we are now going to give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. So let's, uh, let's pay full attention. Let's ask God to remove our distractions. Let's be fully present and open ears, open mind, open heart to him and his spirit one that inspired the word, and the one that will make it a living word in our own lives. Paul writes, I thank God for your every remembrance of me. Keep in mind as I break it up, verses 3 through 8 in Paul's writing, and this is typical of his writing, is one long sentence connecting many parts. I thank God for your every remembrance of me. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. In view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, confident that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion right up until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because you have me in your heart. In my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers of the grace given to me. God is my witness. So here he's making a vow. How I long for you all with the affection or the splanknoi or the guts of Christ Jesus. And this is what I'm praying that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may test and approve what is best in order to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. The Word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for speaking to us. Maybe He's already spoken to you in the reading of His Word. And it is meant for us. And it is a direct communication from an ancient text written a long time ago, far away, by people we haven't met personally. But God says it's a living and active word. And if you're open to it, he'll speak through it directly to you. Now, even as I say that, I want us not to overlook the way in which God speaks to us through His Word. So, before we jump into the Bible here or anywhere else where we uh, study the Bible and say, okay, what's God going to say to me today? Let's take the posture of an eavesdropper, of an interloper, someone who is witnessing a conversation between other people. Because it's in this conversation between other people that God speaks to us. And here we have to realize that uh, we can mess things up or misinterpret if we don't take this posture. In other words, we don't recognize that here this, this word that is for us, that speaks to us from God directly, nevertheless is a real communication from a certain period of time in a certain culture from a certain individual named Paul with uh, all of his, uh, his personality, um, his strengths, his weaknesses, his experiences, all feeding into what he writes, and he is writing from a particular situation and stage in his journey of life to a concrete, specific church in a certain place for certain reasons. And if we take that posture, so in other words, what do you have to say to me, God, today? And God says, come and let's listen to this conversation. We'll realize that in that relationship between apostle and church, in that relationship, God is speaking to us as we observe something that in a way doesn't involve us immediately. We'll see how it does. Does that make sense? So, as we uh, read this book and we realize that uh, we're in an introductory part here, and as I mentioned last week, Paul does use, at least as the at the introduction, at the very end of the letter, some of the conventions of letter writing. And uh, in between the uh, beginning and the end, uh, he really doesn't do many conventional things at all. But... It is conventional to say who you are and say who your recipients are and then give them a greeting and then wish them health, good health, right? So, verses 3 through 11 is Paul's take or Paul's adaptation and spin on the customary, may you have good health, a simple, conventional, perhaps trite statement. But instead of uh, wishing them good health, he tells them how he's been praying for them. So, 
What we see here is a relationship. The specifics can talk to us, speak to us directly, encourage us, yes. But let's step back from all the trees and look at the forest and notice that there is a beautiful relationship that can tell us about our relationships when we observe it. So the relationship between Paul and the Philippians is very intimate and powerful, isn't it? I think you probably got this just from reading this text. And if you know more of Paul's uh, letters, you know that the only comparable relationship that he has with a church is with that other church in Macedonia, the Thessalonians. He also writes in very personal, affectionate, real ways of genuine love and affection. Not that he didn't love the other churches, certainly did, but he was often addressing problems, um, you know, he just cuts right to the thing with Galatians and he doesn't sort of uh, dance around and say how much he likes them. He says, you've got problems. But so different things appropriate to different situations. Here we see what we're witnessing as a third party in a way is a very healthy, wonderful relationship. And isn't that the kind of relationships that we want with one another in the church? Yes. So if we look at this relationship and we see, well, what is it about it that makes it so strong and good? Uh, we'll learn something in that way, apart from the specific, you know, trees in the forest, as we witness um, how Paul communicates. You can see this when you observe other people. I don't know if you spend much time observing other people. If you're sitting in a restaurant, you notice the couple next to you say, oh, they're on their first date. Hey, they're sort of dancing around and being very nervous and making, you know, awkward smiles and stuff like that. Or, boy, uh, they've gotten too used to each other. You know, they're not talking. Maybe they're doing this, something like that, right? Or they're, they're, they're friends. They're sort of negotiating, figuring out uh, where they have common ground, what they're really interested in mutually. Observe communication. Like my neighbor across the street not directly across the street. Don't try to figure out what house this is. You know, I, I observe her communication often at night as, as it comes through the windows loud and clear as she's screaming at her dogs. But, you know, you get a sense of a relationship by observing the way people communicate with one another, don't you? The body language and all the rest. That's what we're doing here, at least from one side, right? We don't get the uh, communication from the Philippians. But we do know that Paul is responding... Uh, that they sent Epaphroditus, that they sent money, a gift. They sent things that uh, are actions that really communicate. And Paul here in words is responding. And we see a relationship that's beautiful and strong. And we can think of the way it was forged. Last week we read in the book of Acts. So someone got that part right, that we were in the book of Acts looking at the way that this church was established. And here's one thing about this relationship is that It was clearly of God in the sense that it wouldn't have happened if it had been up to Paul, right? Here is a God thing from the get-go, but that doesn't make it, um, you know, something that is not wonderful and beautiful for us to embrace and enjoy, even when we realize, wow, we might not have chosen it. You ever think, well, I wouldn't have picked this family. Even the friends that you thought you picked, you thought, I... In retrospect, I don't know if I would have picked these friends or this church, right? So, 
here is, here is a relationship between a man and a church that would never have happened if it had been up to Paul. Right? He wouldn't have gone. He was trying to get to Ephesus. He was trying to get up north to Bithynia. He ended up by God directing him through a vision to cross over to Macedonia. He would have never gone there. There wasn't even a synagogue there. So he looks for someone. Some women gathering by the, the river. Uh, some Jews who are who he can tell about the Messiah, about the promised one. And uh, lo and behold, it was of God. Because God had Lydia waiting there. Waiting there for the seed of the word. Waiting to work in her heart to open it up and receive it. And then that whole incident with the uh, demon-possessed slave girl, the fortune teller, and the riot that occurred when uh, Paul drove the demon out of her and ending up, lo and behold, in God's providence, Paul would have never figured it out this way, but he was in the moment looking at what God was doing, and there God was, he had this jailer who was so preoccupied with his position with his performance at work, his whole identity was tied into his job performance to the degree that when there was an earthquake and the prisoners could have escaped from the cells that were now open, he was ready to kill himself. And that was why God sent Paul to Philippi. Paul didn't know that. So here is a relationship that God had forged. And it's a relationship that was forged and strengthened by suffering. The people knew Paul as the one whose back was, had the stripes of the whip and the flogging of the Romans, who was imprisoned, whom they had witnessed under suffering, themselves facing suffering. It's a very close bond. Whether you translate it, I have you in my heart or you have me in your heart, which is, from my studies, the way I took it, doesn't really matter, right? Here is, they share, they are partakers, they have communion, fellowship, koinonia, in the grace that Paul, that God gave Paul in this preaching of the gospel in his ministry. They are there. They are partners. Here is a bond. What's the secret of this relationship. Not just the way it started, that it was clearly of God, which is key. But what keeps it going? Well, here again, we're going to stand back from the trees and look at the forest, which we might miss if we jump into the forest and look at the trees. Paul here is praying for the Philippians. That's something to take special notice of. Actually, to be more accurate, Paul is not praying in the letter for the Philippians. He is telling the Philippians what he's been praying for them in the long stretches of time between their actual communication with one another. What I want to say in the whole sermon, so I could get it over very quickly, if I just say it now, is that this relationship involves God. He's in this relationship. It is not merely a human relationship. And here's the key to all of your relationships. 
having it a, well, my mother would say, you know, a relationship is a two-way street. Here's a three-way street, if you can, I don't know. That's a bad metaphor. It's a relationship that has in the mix God. So, Paul is not saying, I wish you health. Paul is not saying, thank you for your gift. Paul is saying, I thank God for your gift. Paul is telling them in the ancient world, in the world before the internet, in the world before the text, in the world before, um, what did Eric call it again? Uh, it wasn't Facebook. What was that? It was beautiful. I forget it now. Anyway, uh, in the world before Skype, in the world before the telephone. So, it was a world in which relationships could be conducted even over, you know, 800 miles, like uh, the, the miles that separate the Philippians from Paul. But it was an arduous thing. One had to se- uh, employ a courier. We didn't even have the mail service. But you had to employ a courier, someone who would physically carry your communication all the way over months to say hi. So, he arrives. <laughs> I need some food. And Paul says, hi. So, I mean, it was very involved. Now, it wasn't as terrible as it could be. They didn't know any better. They didn't know about the internet, the telephone, or anything like that. And they thought they had it pretty good because they were in this Roman Empire together. And Rome, through brute force, had established peace and kept that peace going by the military presence in every part of the empire and by being able to get to the farthest corners of this vast empire by building this wonderful road system. So Paul, in his day, probably thought he had it pretty good that you could travel these roads and you could do so safely because of, in God's, pres- in God's providence, the empire of Rome still compared to what we have and what we almost take for granted in our ability to communicate with those whom we love, it was an arduous thing. And to think that this relationship could be sustained by a letter coming with a courier every few months. Paul is reporting to them the work that he's been doing on the relationship in between those few and far between communications, right? Because the relationship's going on and on because it's not just Paul and the Philippians. It's Paul, the Philippians, and God. It's always reverting back to God. So he's saying, Philippians, I want to tell you how I've been praying for you. And that's what he does. In our um, Bible study in Genesis, which let me put a plug in. Is it good? Who goes? Raise your hand if you go. Now, put your hand down if you don't think it's any good. Oh, thanks a lot, Joyce. (laughs) It's good. It's a good discussion. But uh, So we've just been through the the first couple of chapters, the creation of man. And uh, I was able to test a theory that I've had and kind of sort of been toying with on my own, in my own mind, when someone in the Bible study asked the very question that led me to think about this. So, 
God makes things. It just in chapter one, it's over and over again. And God said, "Let there be," and there is. And God said, "It's good." And then at the end, it's different. It's not just God says and it is, but at the very end, when He creates man, we hear a conversation within God. The plan behind the communication, behind the command, "Let there be." Let's let's do something. So here, the plural. The persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, within the one God, are having a conversation within this fellowship, this community, this society of love that exists from eternity between the persons of the Godhead. There is deliberation. Let's do this. Let's create man, humanity, in our image, reflecting us. And so they make man. Chapter 2, when we get the details, it's, it's Adam. And then for the first time, God says, after saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's not good. Adam, this single individual, it's not good that he's alone. And among the many reasons we could think of for that is at least this. The image bearer of the God who is a relational God, a society, the Trinity, a loving interpersonal entity cannot be adequately reflected as an individual who does not have a relationship with someone like him, an equal with whom he can interact, whom he can love. So God takes from Adam, creates Eve, brings what was one now as two individuals, a society, back together and binds them in a loving relationship of mutual interaction. So, human society reflecting the Trinity. But here's the question that came up that had occurred to me earlier, and so I was able to bounce this theory. So how could the triune God, three persons, be adequately reflected in a two-person society of male and female? And I said, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think I have an answer, although it is, you know, it's my own way of dealing with it, but remember that human society is an image, it's not the original, that God's society, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, is an original and is independent and complete in and of itself. Man, as a society, and in every other way, is dependent, is an image, just like a two-dimensional image in a mirror is dependent on the three-dimensional body that it is reflecting. So, when the body leaves, the image is gone. It's fully dependent on the original. And human society was never designed to be independent on its own. It bears the image of God. It needs God in order to bear its image. So the third person, the missing person of human society, I propose, is God. Whether you buy into the theory or the explanation that I just gave or not, I think in practical ways you can appreciate that our relationships with one another, when we're left on our own, go in unhealthy directions. And we need at the center of our relationships, God. And that's the beauty and power of this relationship that Paul has with this church. So, for example, in verse 3, he doesn't say, again, thank you for remembering me. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for Epaphroditus. Certainly he could thank the Philippians, but 
what he's doing, the power of this relationship is recognizing in the Philippians' gift of Epaphroditus, of money, in the Philippians' gift, in remembering him, you ever have uh, just a little indication that someone remembered you, someone thought of you, maybe they clicked like on some picture that you posted on Facebook like five years ago, and you think, oh, they've been creeping my old pictures. But, you know, that's kind of nice in a way, depending on what they're up to. But, you know, they were at least thinking of you, and they maybe looked at a picture and thought, oh, yeah, I like that person. Click, and there's your notification, and oh, someone thought of me. Isn't that nice? But here's the thing. For Paul, not just thanks for remembering me, but you know what? Your remembrance of me is a gift from God. You are a gift from God. God is in this relationship. So when you remember me, the wonderful thing is, not just that you're remembering me, because sometimes maybe you will forget me, right? This human relationship can't be self-sustaining on its own. But when you remember me, the big thing is, it tells me that God is remembering me. It's a little sign that God remembers me. I thank God for you. You are not just a wonderful friend. You're not just nice people. Maybe you're not so nice. But you know what? In our relationship, you are a gift from God. God's the one that set it up. Again, Paul wouldn't have been there in Philippi had it not been for God. This is clearly of God. Think of your relationships in a new way. Think of those ones where you're thinking right now, oh man, if it were only different, a different person, or maybe the same person, but a very different person in that person. You know, we all want the relationships that work because the other person is exactly what we want them to be, but it doesn't usually work that way, does it? Now God's involved in the picture. And in what way is that person, that relationship, maybe as difficult and messy as it is, the gift of God... God's means for working in in your life, the things that need to be worked. So, in the Old Testament, when, uh, when Joseph and his family face a famine, they were in need of food... They went down uh, to Egypt because there was this bond that God had forged between the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and Joseph. And you know the process by which this happened, you know, the way that relationship came to be. It was very complicated, but there it was. And Pharaoh was loyal to Joseph and for his sake to his family and provided them with a home. And then we read hundreds of years later that that relationship could not be sustained merely by human memory. Right, So, there is a time at which Paul's relationship to the Philippians, people are going to die maybe, and then there's going to be new people in the church who don't know Paul. What sustains that relationship? There arose a, a king, a pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. I don't know Joseph. So, what, were the, what was the sort of commitment to the, the family, these, these Israelites, these descendants of Jacob that had grown so... Uh, you know, so large in Egypt there. But we remember, God remembered. God remembered Joseph. God remembered Jacob and his sons and the children of Israel there. Even when Pharaoh forgot, that relationship and its success was not dependent on the other person, you see. So to our relationships, 
You know, they're, they're going to work not because of the other person involved, but because God is involved. And God remembered the children of Israel. I thank God for every remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy because of your participation. You have those relationships where they're just, they're just there. You know, circumstances change. Paul winds up in jail. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that just dropped off. The connection was lost because it was a fair-weather friendship. You know, it, was, it worked while you were having fun doing the same fun things together. But uh, the, the depth of that relationship versus the superficiality of that relationship will be tested when you go through stuff. And what, what we're seeing here, what we're witnessing, is a, a real bond. Because God is at its center, because it is a participation in that grace or gift, Paul's not just saying, in my ministry, you know, or in my corporation or something like that, but you are full participants in the grace given me. So it's, it's a God thing from beginning to end. That's the glue and the power of their relationship. And they are partners and they are there. They are driven like a stake in the ground. I'm going to be with you, whatever happens. However many hundreds of miles separate us. However much your circumstances no longer benefit me. However much you become in need of my help. You know, a friend in need is a friend indeed. They told me that as a kid, and I'm trying to think, well, a needy friend is probably going to be a pain. But the thing is, you look at a friend in need, and you've got to remember they're still a friend, right? So it's a question not of whether they're a friend or not, but whether you are. Notice that before Paul actually gets to what he's been praying for them, he describes the way he feels about them, that flows into the prayer. Here's why I'm praying for you the way I do, because of our relationship. And here's why our relationship is what it is, because I see God in that relationship. Are we getting things for ourselves here? If we're not there yet, I'm going to keep trying. Okay. So if you're nodding, yes, we're getting it, then I'll, I'll shorten the sermon significantly. If you see God in your relationship as the fundamental reality that makes this relationship work even when it's not working on a human level, well, it's liberating, isn't it? Sometimes the problem in relationships is, well, what can I do to fix this relationship? How, how do I need to change? We need to ask those questions, but sometimes we can't do that. But this relationship works with this church because there's an understanding here that God is the one who initiated it and God is the grounding and foundation of the entire enterprise. So when he says, I'm, I'm praying for you, I'm thanking God for you because I'm recognizing that you are a gift of God. And I don't know if we take time to think about those relationships we have with one another in church or in family and we think of the good things. Later on, after he's told them what he's been talking to God about on their behalf, he's going to encourage them directly, do this. Now notice the order, it's important. He's prayed that God would do it, and then he tells them to do it. 
He doesn't tell them to do it and then pray that God would do it. Okay? It starts with God. So when he tells them to do something, it is uh, do what I've already prayed with confidence that God is going to do in you. And he's going to tell them to rejoice. And he's going to tell them to bring all of their anxieties and cares to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And he's already shown them the way. I thank God for you. He says, I pray with confidence because God started this. He began a good work and he's going to carry it on, perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So this relationship, if it's God-centered with one another as well, can be full of confidence. Because ultimately, it reverts to the good work of God. Ultimately, it's going to be sustained by, and it's going to be brought to fruition by, God, the one who started in the first place. So, having God in the center of your relationships means that you can freely encourage one another. Do you hear this? In other words, I'm not well, my confidence in you, meh, meh, so, you know, it depends, right? Maybe I can see stuff that, okay, I think I can put some confidence in that, but not 100%, maybe 85 or whatever. So, these human relationships that depend on us and the other party whom we cannot control to sustain, are ne- are, they're always going to be shaky and fragile, right? But... If you have a relationship that is given over to God and recognizes as the primary force God's work, then you can have confidence and you are set free to encourage one another. So I thank God for you and and I pray with confidence. I can encourage you. God began a good work. He's going to keep doing it. If it was dependent on you, I'd look at you and I'd say, you had an okay start, so-so. I don't know, you're probably going to screw up. But that's not it. God is in this relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're full of confidence. And that confidence sets us free to be able to encourage one another. How do I put this in a way that you're going to get it? Encourage one another. Right? That's what we need to hear. Whatever we're going through, we need to hear one another say, you know what? It's going to be okay because God. Right? It's going to be okay because God. He began this work and He's going to keep keep working until it's done. Because it's God. God does not run out of steam and say, well, I used to be excited about this, not so much anymore. That's not, he doesn't start something that he doesn't finish. He's going to carry it on right up until the day of Christ Jesus. So here, Paul, 800 miles away, in chains, not entirely sure about the outcome of his case, perhaps being put to death. The Philippians, impoverished and uh, despised in their community, at all kinds of human disadvantages. 
And Paul reminds them, you know, this is not the last chapter of our story. So twice in our little passage here, he points them to the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to keep working at, on you. So in those very difficult times where it just seems impossible and so discouraging, no, in the grand scheme of things, if we resort to God and His presence and His plan in our relationships... He's working in those dark times, and it's a step in the right direction. We can't see how that works out, but we know it by faith. There is going to be a day. It's going to be Jesus' day. You ever use the expression, back in my day? You get to be my age, and you start using that expression. In other words, it's not my day anymore. What does that mean? I'm still alive, but, you know, I'm just sort of hanging out while it's other people's day. You know, but back in my day when I was young and the world was mine and belonged to me and my generation and everything was great and we had the cultural dominance, that was my day. But now it's sort of like, okay, the young people are doing what they're doing. I don't they're crazy. And But back in my day, yeah, we were kind of crazy too. Here's the thing, though. There comes a day. There's going to be a day coming. And it's where things are headed. And it's... When God started things on Easter Sunday, bringing Jesus from the dead, when God started things by reaching down into our sepulchers and raising us to life in union with Christ Jesus, when He started that, He's going to carry it on. What was His plan? Why did you raise me from death to life? Because there's going to be a day when Jesus, it's going to be His day. And he's going to have the dominant influence. It's going to be a kingdom that is righteous. It's going to be a kingdom of grace and kindness and peace and joy and all of those things. Do you believe this is going to happen? Paul chained and facing Caesar's verdict. And, you know, Caesar, well, he wasn't a Christian. His hands were in the hand, his life was in the hands of this man? No, it was in the hands of God. And that didn't matter. You know, all the days in between, we'll get through it because we are heading to a day when it's going to be, you know, Jesus' day. And his way, think of his way. His way is going to be the way. It's going to be the way people act. It's going to be the way people treat each other. It's going to be the way uh, we live. It's going to obliterate everything else. It's going to obliterate all injustice. It's going to obliterate all pain and suffering. It's going to obliterate all wickedness and oppression and sin. And it's going to be His day. So, does that give you confidence as you interact with one another, as you are set free with, with God and His plan at work at the core of your relationships? He started it. He's going to keep going. There's, going to be, there's someone here who needs to hear that at the picnic today. I don't even know who won the football game yesterday. That doesn't make me better or worse than anybody else. I don't really care. All football in Syracuse is to me is a traffic problem, but who won? <laughs> Syracuse? Oh, that's nice. 
So you can talk about that, but there's going to be someone, there's going to be someone at the picnic to whom you need to say, I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. They were there in thick and thin. And, God, and Paul has this affection. And this is his prayer, that their love may grow more and more. That God's presence in there... Think of all the things he could have prayed, right? Here's what I pray, that you'd send more money or that you would have fewer problems or that. But, um, but here's, the pr- here's the prayers that we know God is going to answer. That you would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That that love that you received is going to continue growing in you and abound. So, I'm, when someone says, I'm praying for you, what do you think? How do you feel? It's not always sort of like, oh, that's great. It's kind of like, oh, what's wrong with me? Yeah, or what do you think is wrong with me, right? <laughs> I'm praying for you. Well, you know, if your relationship with one another is sustained by representing one before the throne of God, you know, you might not be able to communicate very quickly with someone 800 miles away by courier service that you have to employ, especially when you are stuck by a chain to someone else. But you can relate to that person directly with God. And there's no miles between us and God and between God and one another. You see, you can sustain that relationship. And then when you have the ability to say, I've been praying for you, make sure you have. And you will be able to say, here's the way I've been praying for you. Not, okay, now I remember you, let's pray. But I've been talking to God for you. How do you talk to God for someone else? Well, think about our great high priest, and we are priests in him. And how does Christ pray for you? That's how you pray for one another. Okay? How does Christ pray for you? God in all things, strengthen them in your presence in their lives so that they exhibit your love, so that they know your peace, so that they have strength and endurance through all things. And all of these things, we can be so confident in praying for uh, one another because we know it's according to the will of God. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for other things like, I hope they get a new car. You know, We can pray for things that we, we're not sure whether God plans to answer that way because Jesus himself, sinless, righteous Jesus, says, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, your will. And here's God's will that your love would abound, would grow, and it would become smart love. It would grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that um, eventually you'll be able to figure out what's more important. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's, that's the way it is, isn't it? You know, young parents, new, first child, you know, you, you, you've got a thousand things, and in your mind, because you don't have experience, they're all, all of equal importance. Oh my goodness, this person needs an education. Oh no, they need to finish their peas and carrots. And you know, they're all important, right? And you love this person, so you want the best for your child. And then, you know, you have, you know, when you have 17 kids, and then you, you I'm not so excited about the peas and carrots. I mean, you know, he ate a pea, that's great. No, I just, you know, you, 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 you become a little more confident in your relationship, in your love, because you've figured out through trial and error and suffering what's really important. And that's what Paul is praying. That your love would grow 
and that it would become smarter and smarter as you figure out what's really important and what's not so important. That you may be blameless and pure. Pure and blameless is the way he puts it here. And here I want to remind you again that uh, later on, this unique word combination only comes again, even though it's with synonyms, not these exact words, later on in chapter 2 when he says, do everything without arguing and complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. So here, he, he, before he tells them, don't argue so that you can become uh, pure. So that you can, in other words, become uh, not a mixture of the good and the bad, but just sincere and real in being a Christian. And blameless, faultless, and beyond accusation. So, before I tell you these things, to do these things, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you at the beginning here that I've prayed that God would do it in you. So, my expectation is grounded not in you, but in God. So, here I, I pray that your love would abound more and more, because that's something that God is going to do. I'm not going to begin by telling you, love more. I'm going to say, I'm praying that God would, would, would cause your love to abound, that it would be smarter love, so that you would be pure. And God's going to do it. And prayer takes the freight of all the problems of our relationships and puts them in the mighty hands of God rather than dumping them on each other. Isn't that wonderful? Blameless and pure until the day of Christ. There's that pointer again. Remember that day. It's coming. So live it now. Begin now. Because that's going to be the dominant day. Don't be part of that, that evil, dysfunctional, broken relationship. Be, the, be a part of the healing that's it's going to have the dominant influence that day when Jesus returns. And then verse 11, and it's the last verse, so we're almost done here. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Again, it's all dependent on him. To the glory and praise of God. And I just want to point out one thing that's really interesting is that verb tense. That here Paul uses the perfect tense. So... Um, to pick it up, I pray your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernments so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having already been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Again, it's all God. That's all of our confidence in our relationships with one another in the church. All comes from God, not that Produce the fruit of righteousness, yes, that's a valid command, but it comes from the confidence that you are already filled. You have been filled with all of this fruit. So, I'm just excited to see it come out. The fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of our efforts. It's the fruit of the Spirit that has been given to us freely in Jesus Christ, in whom we share through Jesus Christ. And all of the good things are going to come out because we've been filled with it through Jesus Christ. That's why we end on the glory and praise of God. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Let's pray. Father, as we have witnessed the interaction between Paul and the Philippians, we pray, O Lord, that we would see now ourselves 
and that which you are speaking into our hearts and lives and that which you want us to experience in our relationships with one another um, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, what, uh, what joy can be ours when you are at the center of our relationships. We ask uh, that you would uh, keep working in our hearts and minds as we reflect on your word throughout the day and uh, help us to experience that in our interactions. The picnic throughout the week, Lord, in our homes, in our attitudes. Thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you that there is no distance between us because of Jesus. We pray for the hastening of his day. We pray that we might live it now. And we pray in his name. Amen.